Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on WORTFM.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly. Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm a, I am your host, Ali Maltrow. This is a public affair, and today we have the pleasure of talking about a new book from Split Lip Press. The we- that weaves personal essays and cultural critique into the historical fabric of black and biracial identity. Sean Enfeld is the, author, is the author of The Holy American Burnout, which is out today. Thanks for joining us on A Public Affair on your publication day, Sean. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Thanks for having me, Ali. This is incredible. You know, I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's a big day for you. And you started today. Um, I, I feel like I can't really imagine what it's like to, you know, work on a book and, and pour your heart and soul into it and then know that people will be able to go into a store and buy it today. Um, but, you know, instead of going to the store and buying your own book or like, you know, selfieing with it, you were at a high school in Milwaukee this morning um, helping young people with their writing. Talk a little bit about what today looks like for you. Sure, yeah. I did my selfies last night, you know, because I knew I had to be up early to get to the school. So <laughs> I, I got it out of the way. That way I didn't have to, uh, you know, waste time. Um, yeah, it's just a normal Tuesday morning until now. Uh, just 8 a.m., let the dog out to pee and ran off to uh, ran off to the school. I was a student working on a speech for a contest today. Martin Luther King's speech contest. I'm not entirely sure of the details. I just I just know we needed a speech because it wasn't fully written yet. So that's what we were focused on. <laughs> did the did the speech get done? The speech is written. And All right. He's performing at one p.m. So that's 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 right after this. It's a it's a nice bookend. <laughs> All right. Well, we're we're rooting for that young person, and we're excited that we get to talk to you about your book. Talk to us a little bit about Holy American Burnout. Why is it called Holy American Burnout? What inspired you to write this book? Sure, yeah. So this is a it's a essay collection. It's semi semi linked. So the essays mostly follow um, my <laughs> time. I I taught for a year as a uh, middle school English teacher uh, down in Texas, where I was born and raised, down in Dallas, Texas, at a predominantly Muslim preparatory school, um, 2015-2016. So as the uh, Trump campaign was getting started, and I'm green from undergrad, fresh from reading all these theory texts, thinking that, you know, I'm going out of college, and here I am, I'm going to change the world, um, and met with the harsh reality of what it actually be. It's being in a classroom and having to navigate, you know, the education of the youth and teaching them the books that we're assigned to read, also while they're navigating their own kind of political awakenings and political concerns around, um, you know, the... Uh, for lack of a better word, hate speech that was being spewed by the then candidate, eventual president at the time. And so the essays mostly follow in those lines, going back into that classroom, finding the narratives there that kind of connect in to our broader American condition and to the kind of exhaustion I started to feel trying to like be in this space, navigate, you know, the my own. And I, I think a way that a lot of like, folks of my generation, millennials feel in this, like they develop these ideas and they, this nobility that they want to like bring into what they do all the time. And then are actually met with the, uh, the challenges of applying that in their daily life in a system that is not geared towards, you know, kindness or care or empathy. Um, and how do you then do the work while also doing the, the inner work and keeping yourself fresh and alive? So that's kind of the where the burnout aspect of the title came from, right? That American burnout idea of taking this classroom story and building it in this broader narrative about what it means to be, you know, in this time, in this country, doing the work that I was doing and the work that I see so many other people doing. And Sean, hopefully that they reflect I, on that. 
I think that there's something so powerful about talking about burnout without the, within the context of education. Um, talking about burnout within the context of how we treat our children at school, um, because how we treat our kids at, at school, the level of productive productivity we expect from young people says something about who we are as a society and what we value. Um, and also, you know, this ability to talk about schools as spaces um, that that really should be celebrations of our shared humanity, um, but ultimately end up being incredibly dehumanizing um, for both educators and and young people. When you were writing this book, did did you kind of balance a little bit between what it was like for you to go to school, your experience as a student in Texas um, versus your experience as an educator and and how did you you reconcile some of, you know, I think I think when we get into education or when we have kids, we think we're going to be super different um, than our parents and we're going to be super different than the teachers we had. And all of a sudden there's this reality check of why the adults in our lives had to show up in certain ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a big part of. So, like I said, it's it's semi linked. Right. So not all the essays are about you know, me as the educator, I felt it was important that I, I needed to like, there's a full self that comes into being in any position, right? A teacher, whatever that is, right? But certainly as an educator, right? Certainly as you're presenting somebody in front of a class. So it was important to me to kind of dig into my own kind of upbringing, the own kind of like, um, you know, subjectivities, biases, my, my parents and all of my own kind of raising my own kind of like, my own kind of political awakenings, right? That you know, I'm talking about my students who are kind of tuning in to the news for the first time as it becomes to feel a little bit more personal for them and thinking about those times where that was happening to me and right, telling those stories and trying to put those side by side and think about, yeah, what was those and trying to, in some ways, because um, it's easier for me now writing the books to feel the empathy that I feel um, was harder as the uh, person in the classroom, right, who is trying to maintain order and uh, what you might call classroom management, right? And so there's a little bit of it a way of as a kind of a reclamation of the the educator I had, I had wished I was at that time. It was my first year teaching, right? So I was still, I was learning some things on the job, but there are some ways of like thinking about how that full self can be better and how that full self can be more compassionate and doesn't have to, you know, resort back to the, well, this is the way it was when I was growing up. And so this is the way we should get, we should get back to the lesson where we don't have time for this digression about, you know, what's happening in the election, right? We need to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird, right? So that's, you know, and they're like, why? And you're like, well, because I said so, right? That like kind of classic shutdown well, and phrase. And does To Kill a Mar Mockingbird <laughs> relate to the election, right? Like I think as educators, you're always trying to tease out, like how do I make this classic text relevant to, to young people right now? Are there things, are there books that you taught your students that you feel like inspired your writing? Um, was Were there things that you loved teaching kids and do those things show up in this book? Sure, yeah, so that's a great question. And you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a hard balance to strike, and I think anybody who's um, taught can say that. Right, in that I was I was a first year teacher, so I was you know a lot of what I was teaching was given to me by you know the person in charge. Like we need to teach this book because this is the book. So that To Kill a Mockingbird was one of those books, which is a book that I reflect on. Like I mean, I was taught that at the same grade level at seventh and eighth grade that I was teaching it at, and so there, you know, that's um, wasn't that ten years of history. I guess, I was about to age myself more than I needed to, but you know, 10 years between myself and my students when I was doing that, um, right? And so, but for me, I was always trying to find ways to even with those, and I, I mean, obviously To Kill a Mockingbird, um, still relevant. I mean, the issues of the race that Harper Lee was tackling, um, obviously still present, but it's not always easy for, you know, the 12 year old, the 13 year old to make those connections. And so for me, I mean, the first essay of the book is trying to recreate this lesson. I I, mean, I didn't want it to just all be like, here are the times where I failed as a teacher, right? So I, the first essay of the book is me trying to recreate this lesson where I felt like, you know, we we accomplished something, right? So I take the, we took the To Kill a Mockingbird and at that time, um, Kendrick Lamar's um, To Pimp a Butterfly had just come out. And so- and oh, I'm, I'm so I'm glad that we're talking about <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird and To Pimp a Butterfly at the same time. I've wanted <laughs> to talk to you, Sean, for years. I'm so <laughs> glad you're here today. Um, Cause yes, that's like, 
you know, I was sad when To Pimp a Butterfly came out that I wasn't in high school, like that nobody was like <laughs> using that as a tool um, to make the, the freshman curriculum more relevant um, because it really is like this this musical outline of the thematic qualities of kind of what you see on a freshman English reading list, um, including, Absolutely. you know, referencing To Kill a Mockingbird and Color Purple and, you know, hashtag we love you Kendrick. Um, <laughs> yes. This book does embrace like hip hop uh, as as part of of the conversation. Why was it important to you to infuse to infuse this conversation about American burnout, about education, um, with you know a, a love of music and and uh, a real kind of insight into the contemporary contemporary writing that is driving hip hop forward right now? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, part of it is just that's who I am. And I, I'm, I'm always kind of like looking to music to provide some kind of like, like you were saying, like to provide some kind of like those things that like we in an ideal world that teaching is supposed to do, right? To make these connections for us to see these things. Right. And so music for me is this great kind of bridge between myself and, you know, the culture. But also I feel like it's this great bridge between, you know, ourselves and like each other. Right. And I, I you know, 10 years is a big, I was joking earlier about how 10 years isn't that long between the gap between me and my students, but it, a lot changes in 10 years. But the one thing that we we did find that we had in common is that we still had a love for hip hop. They didn't always love the hip hop that I was <laughs> into. Uh, they had some different tastes, but that's okay, right? Thankfully, yeah, um, we can meet in the middle with Kendrick. Um, and so <laughs> bringing Kendrick into that classroom was important to me, right? And that was also at a time when um, All Right was becoming a, a kind of you know, a protest anthem too, right? It was coming kind of a, 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 um, a, you know, an anthem for activist movement there for Black Lives Matter. And so it was identifiable in the news. It was identifiable as, you know, bigger than just the music itself, right? It was speaking to this kind of um, larger moment, this larger affirmation of like black humanity. Uh, and my students, you know, uh, you know, Arabic descent, right? But still facing this kind of like dehumanization in the, in the news and in the rhetoric being spread about, um, who, who they were, while not necessarily, um, you know, maybe not resonating with the Black Lives Matter movement in the same way that I was, we were still kind of meeting at this point of like needing this feeling of like, but well, we are people too, right? And we we are going to be all right. We are going to find some kind of way to like, you know, vocalize how we feel in this moment and to stand up for ourselves and to kind of use that, to draw that back into the text and to think about how you know, this character of Tom Robinson and To Kill a Mockingbird doesn't necessarily, like, I think Harper Lee's book is incredible. I think she did what she could do, right? But to use hip hop to kind of give that voice to Tom that he doesn't really have in that text, right? Because he's kind of more serving this metaphor of like that scout and that um, Atticus Fincher want to talk about, want to, you know, bring up about a kind of nice feeling of equality, right? A nice, like, you know, we all, we should treat each other the same, right? But Tom still is murdered in the end, right? He still um, faces some kind of judgment for a crime he didn't commit, right? And that is the reality of that situation there. But then using Kendrick to kind of like imagine this alternative, imagine this world in which someone could maybe voice for themselves in a more, you know, in a, in a way that's more befitting of the human they are, in a way that's more befitting of, you know, what they have to offer the world outside of just being this kind of symbol for uh, in this in this classic text. Right? You know, I feel like you're really tempting me to just like nerd out and talk with you about To Kill a Mockingbird for an hour, which I would love <laughs> to do because I also worked in English departments for seven years and taught spoken word poetry. And the idea of like To Kill a Mockingbird from a black perspective, I'm like, let's just spend three hours talking about that. But we're not going to because we're here to talk about your book. And your book is not <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird. Your book is Holy American Burnout. However, I just have to say, God, um, what what a gift to the classroom you must have been, even in your in your first year, or you must still continue to be, um, because I I'm so excited to get to have this conversation with you today, and I hope that the folks who are listening are just as excited to hear from Sean Enfield, who is an essayist, poet, gardener, bass 
bassist, um, educator from Dallas, Texas. His writing attempts to find connection through music, words, as reclamation of labor, as community care, and as resistance to the many forces of white supremacy working against marginalized bodies. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WORT. 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is A Public Affair. We're talking to Sean about his book that is out today, Holy American Burnout. Before we get carried away, I just want to say that I got to give a shout out to the team that makes this show possible, to my amazing producer, Jade, who continues to just find great books and great people to talk about great books with. Um, We love you so much, Jade. We're so lucky that we get to work with you and that you connect us with incredible people to talk to. Huge shout out to John, who is rocking an amazing ponytail today. And of course, as always, mad love and respect for our our leader, Sholly Pittman, um, who, who brings us all together and makes it all happen. Uh, I couldn't do this without without the great people who, you know, find find the books for me and make sure that we're on the air. So shout out to our engineer, our news director and our producer. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Sean, who are the people that helped you make this book happen? I I think about writing a book as such a solitary activity. and in some ways, kind of a lonely activity. But at the end of the day, if you're going to publish a book, it takes a team of people to market that book, to get that book sold. Um, who who are the people who showed up for you to help make this happen? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, you know, I'm always trying to resist both that um, that narrative that writing is. I mean, I, I do this to myself. I it, I'm, I try to resist it to myself first because I. I, I I get in that headspace all the time. It's like, you know, I have to sit at my computer and close the blinds and shut myself off to the world and write something, right? That, And I'm always trying to remind myself that there is a a need for community in order to, like, produce something if it's going to be of any kind of merit. And I'm really grateful to um, Split Lip Press, the, the press that's putting out the book. I mean, they are, it's a wonderful team. Um, Christine at, is the editor-in-chief and who welcomed the book and has always been super, like, encouraging and you can really, from the beginning, I could tell that she like was invested in the vision of the book, not this, uh, not a version of the book that they wanted to shape it into. And then working with uh, Lauren Westerfield, who was the nonfiction editor there, to you know really refine what that vision was and to make it the book that is now um, out today, right? So that, but even before that, and it's in the writing process of it alone. Right? I mean, I I guess I was my cat who just decided to join me certainly wanted to remind me that she should get a shout out, I guess. Um, (laughs) It's true. She like, you were about to move on and she was like, I think you are forgetting somebody. Like I will be right here on this zoom with you until you get it together. You're going to shout out people before you shout out the one who's always on your lap while you're doing these things. How dare you? (laughs) Um, So, you know, of course the cat can't, can't Marceline, you know, can't have written the book without, without a cat nearby somewhere uh, stepping on your computers and adding letters that you did not need <laughs> in there. But it's fun to go back and pause and erase them. Uh, but also, I mean, I, I was grateful enough. I was been, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm privileged enough to be able to like take some time and pursue an MFA. I did my MFA up in Fairbanks, Alaska, which was dark and cold. Um, but I did a lot of the writing of this book up there. Um, and so, I mean, I'm I'm grateful to you know my professors there and my 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 fellow grad students. We were all going through a lot of. I mean, the pandemic happened near the end of my time there, and obviously it's still happening. Uh, pandemic started during my time there, right? And so we were going through incredible world changes, but also incredible. Most of us came from the south up to Alaska, and it's like, oh, great! Now it's cold and dark, and snow is here for six months. Right. So we're dealing with this incredible personal changes in our life and still having to produce things. And I mean, again, that's not something I I'm not that strong of a person. I don't write this book if I'm not surrounded by people who are also like engaged in this activity and pushing us forward to, you know, write these, write our stories and try to tell something meaningful that hopefully somebody else can take something in. Right. So, I, you know, I, I my name's on the cover, but I really should put like all all of the people, my family right the, who have been there i started writing when i was in like middle school myself 
was 13 years old. And at some point I was like, oh, I'm going to write. That's what I'm going to do. And, you know, at some point my mom or dad should have been like, what? Don't do that. <laughs> you can maybe find a, maybe find like something else and then write on the side. But, you know, they they encourage that delusion of mine. They 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 push that. They they uh, they let that fester and grow and bloom and blossom to the point that I, you know, I've been able to continue to pursue it and continue to like. Oh, I yeah. love that you shout out to your parents. I, I think it's a really hard thing to like encourage your kid to be an artist because it's really counterintuitive in our society. I think the, the messaging is always um, that you're not going to make any money. You're not going to have health care. You're not going to exactly. you're not going to be able um, to do that. And so, you know, shout out to encouraging parents. Um, For sure. And, yeah, and they're, they're, you know, they're doing retail, right? They're doing retail. And I don't have kids of my own. I, you know, I work with students. I don't have kids of my own, but I can't imagine you know, you're working retail and your kid come home's like, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be an artist. You know, it's like the, 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 the fear you must fear for that child must be strong. And, but to be able to like set that aside and still find an encouragement, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm grateful, blessed. <laughs> Heck yeah. Sean, I want to take a little bit of time to to let folks hear from the book. Um, and so we talked a little before the show about you reading a little bit to to our audience. Um, yeah. What do, what do you want to share with us today? Sure. Yeah, I think I'll read from the first couple pages since we we're already talking about the this is the essay that opens the book uh, to pimp a mockingbird, a lesson plan. Um, so I'll read the first couple pages there that kind of starts it and sets the the scene for the, the school that I'm in. To Pimp a Mockingbird, a lesson plan. Overview. 2015, the president is black, young Jeezy's Lambo is blue, and he'd be gosh darned if his rims ain't too. And you, first year middle school English teacher that you are, you fixate on a class you'd never taken. Good kids, mad cities. Taught by Adam Deal, a professor at Georgia Regents University and centered on the Kendrick Lamar album, Good Kid, Mad City. You teach 11 to 13 year olds, an all boys class, children of wealthy Pakistani immigrants in a small North Texas town. Prior to this gig, you were taught only once before and only for a summer. Now, you're just a few weeks into the job. You need ideas, inspiration, guidance, control. Yesterday, as the class read aloud from To Kill a Mockingbird, two students fell asleep, one snored, Another ended every line of dialogue by adding, "D's nuts. And after returning from the principal's office for that very same, sorry. And another ended every line of dialogue by adding, "D's nuts. Even after returning from the principal's office for that very same offense. Another st student rocked back and forth in his seat, compulsively it seemed, until he farted. And the other students mocked him. Voila, you smell like poop. And the farting student smiled, happy for attention in whatever form. Typically, they sit in silence whenever you ask questions about the novel. They're bored, you justify. In 2014, Deal found a way to spice up his course description and in doing so got some media coverage. Deal's course seemed to be the first to utilize Kendrick Lamar at the university level, though far from the first to present hip hop in that setting. We will examine the role of urban living on the development of young people, the course description reads, by studying and analyzing various literature, films, and KDOT's albums. We will consider what effect our character surroundings have on who they become as adults. In an interview with Spin, Theo remarks, it'd be a disservice to my literature brethren to not include any books. And indeed, his syllabus features James Baldwin, Gwendolyn Brooks, and yes, of course, the most gangster of all Irish writers, James Joyce. Well, if Deal can make James, James Joyce hip hop, then surely you can do the same with Atticus Finch. Or rather, Deal is setting out to make Kendrick Lamar literary. It's like literature, he says, of good kid. It's a story. It's got characters, themes, drama, and climaxes, everything that makes us love printed material. And you agree. You're not sure why Deal, a white man, needs to defend the literary merit of Kendrick Lamar, but nevertheless, you agree with him. You can imagine how Lamar benefits Deal. After all, he teaches in Augusta, Georgia, a city with a 29% Black population and a university with a near representative 25% Black enrollment. This seems motivation enough because, well, let's be real. You also want to jazz up the material a bit. Give it a beat. You've got a student who wears his Drake hoodie every day, a large golden owl printed on the front grazing at you. 
as you write him on yet another office referral. One day after school, he posed the question, who's the better MC, Drake or Kendrick? And pointing at his hoodie, the student answers confidently, Ives Drake, then adds, but Kendrick has bars too, I guess. Justification enough, you think, and the lesson plan takes shape in your mind. But your trepidation remains. You're reminded of a quote from King of the Hill, the Gospel of Texas, about Christian rock. Can't you see you're not making Christianity better, Hank Hill quips to a wannabe hip youth minister, tattoo clad and soul patched. You're just making rock and roll, making rock and roll worse. You fear you'll do the same, combining your two messiahs, hip hop and literature. And yes, indeed, Dio reminds you of a youth minister. Like many a good Texas boy, you grew up in and around the Christian church and its hip youth groups. Most of the youth ministers you've known have been pleasant enough though. And now as an adult, you even consider one your for consider your former youth pastor as one of your best friends. Still, you are wary of youth ministers the way some read old white Republicans might be, be wary of rappers, you suppose. Deal is pale with a dark black beard, scruffy and unkempt like the mop atop his head. But still he tucks his dark blue button up into a pair of nice fit fitting khakis, his thick framed glasses poking out from the breast pocket. He has a slight Southern drawl and in interviews waxes poetic about hip hop with all the confidence of a studied fan. Then again, he approaches the subject always as a scholar, explaining elements of the genre, rap skits, for example, as if to the uninitiated. You wonder if he's ever said the N-word in class. And yet, you'd like to get a beer with him, pick his brain, good kid or the pimp a butterfly, you'd ask him. You'd ask him which was more important to him, giving James Joy street cred or sneaking Kendrick into the canon. You'd ask him how he would incorporate Kendrick Lamar into a middle school English class, and if, hey, he thinks maybe Harper Lee had bars too. Oh man, I I have to say I, I particularly love the description of the classroom and kind of the movements of students. Anybody who's worked in a, a middle school classroom knows like the comedy um, just keeps coming if, if you can <laughs> sure keep does. up with it. Um, but I also really love the the quote from King of the Hill. It, it reminds me of kind of the, the Issa Rae quote about spoken word. She's like, hip hop and poetry had a baby. I wish I could abort that baby. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate the <laughs> I appreciate the 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 self critique, right? When you're teaching and you kinda want something to be cool, you want it to be relevant, is is one of the moments I think we all realize like how uncool we are, um, or how, <laughs> how long it's been since we were cool. Um and and the the hope of like getting young people to engage um, and want to learn and build community is is such a profound hope. Do you miss being in the classroom? Yeah, I certainly, I mean, like I said, I'm doing the like writing coach thing, which is I'm not the main instructor. I'm just there three days a week. And it's been nice to kind of resume being in the kind of secondary classroom. Right now I'm um, at the university. I'm at work in my PhD. So I'm still, I'm teaching like composition writing classes, but I do miss that kind of like, I'm not disparaging my my undergrads, and uh, if they're not listening, but if they were listening, I, you know, I love you guys as well. They're great, uh, but there is that kind of like you said, that energy, that humor that comes from being in that secondary ed space, and that kind of like, sure, it it can sometimes be draining, but it does that keeping you on your toes. There's a kind of like affirmation to being around that generation and to kind of navigate these things, and it forces me, you know. Um, still forcing me, even like reflecting on it, right, to rethink some things constantly, right? I, 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 um, I was listening to an interview with the uh, with Black Thought recently, um, and he was talking about. They were asking him like, you know, which rappers he was a fan of now, and he was talking about how he didn't, you know, he he named a few, and I can't remember who he named, but he was like, I don't necessarily always get what they're saying, but that's okay because you know it's not my generation anymore. Hip hop is the language of the youth, and I don't need to know what these kids are saying, right? And so there's a part of me that's like, yeah, it's. I don't always need to understand. It's great to just kind of like be in that space and to like kind of learn from each other. And to, I, you know, I was the teacher, but I, I, I feel like I'm constantly, it's a give and take there. And I do miss that 
that space in a lot of ways because of that. No, and there's also nothing like working with middle schoolers to expand your vocabulary um, because middle schoolers are the people who kind of engage <laughs> with language really creatively. In fact, you know, they say like girls between the ages of 12 and 14 are the most likely people to invent words. Um, and so as as a writer, it's it's got to be kind of interesting fuel um, to work with a, a population that kind of has a a a more liberated approach to language in and of itself when you're working with that age group. And I think middle schoolers are really, really challenging to work with. I'm raising a middle schooler right now. This is wreaking terror on, on you know, me and my household and her school. Um, and so I think it takes, you know, a pretty, a pretty gifted person to do that work. Huge thank you to everybody who's teaching middle school today, including my husband, Preach. Sandy Wielander at Senate. Um, we, we, man, y'all make the world go round. I, I think, you know, talking about burnout within the context of education has an aspect of kind of inherent controversy, um, because in the United States, we we really like to think of of certain jobs as harder than other jobs, as more important than other jobs. Um, education is associated with the labor of women um, and, right. and not thinking of, of the work women do as work is part of our, our long term relationship to sexism. Um, you know, when you when you talk about burnout, and, and talk about teachers, I think there's a lot of people who kind of roll their eyes and go, well, you guys have summer break. You guys have weekends and evenings off. You all have, uh, you know, spring break. You all have built in vacation. And, and for, you know, the majority of Americans living in poverty, um, those things are not a, a part of, of what it means to be part of the workforce. How do you how do you balance kind of the intellectual privilege of of working in education um, and being valued for your intellectual contribution um, with the fact that it is really challenging work that a lot of people understand? And I always say, if you think somebody's job is easy, it's probably because you don't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, there is there is a um... I mean, I think in some ways there I was you saw around like when the lockdowns first started happening, there were these posts of people like, oh, I, I, I appreciate what teachers are doing because now my kid's home and having to do these classes at online. And I that 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 seems to have maybe gone away a little bit now that school has resumed already that how quickly some of these lessons are forgot, um, which maybe is also a good <laughs> good reason to read how the hard book. teaching, yeah, right, uh, how hard teaching maybe is. Um, yeah, it's I don't know. I think of education i mean it's again in the any ideal right it is a very i don't how do i put it I, it feels to me it, it runs against what so many of our like capitalist systems privilege as like work and privilege as like labor and privilege as what is you know going to even though it's at education at its core is meant to like prepare you in some sense to go into this workforce right the actual like act and practice of it, you know, doing that kind of social, emotional learning with those students, especially uh, as important now as it ever was, again, coming out of those lockdowns and really, you know, getting students to kind of return to like, you know, dealing with that, that two years of trauma of like school shutting down and not being able to see friends and not being able to kind of like um, socialize in the way and like and develop in that way that you know, students before them had developed, right? So there's even more pressure for that kind of like teaching students how to just not just like learn books, but how to be human, how to learn and how to like exist together. And um, right, so that, that kind of like, as you said, like typically feminized labor, right? Typically, um, you know, characterizes like this nurturing thing that is not not real work, not backbreaking work, right? But is incredibly exhausting on like the mind and incredibly exhausting on the body as well. Uh, as just you're you're pushing against the gears of what you know we're meant to do we're meant to kind of produce we're meant to kind of show results we're meant to kind of make something that can be um monetized and sold right and that's not necessarily what education does even though it's purported as being oh this is going to help you get a job and this is going to help you um be a in the workforce and exist in american society right and i, I think there's the, there's these kind of like competing tensions right that are always at play that are it's wearing down the educators it wears down the students and then you have to deal with 
folks who have political office who have no idea how to teach, um, passing legislation about teaching and what should be taught. Um, and that's its own can of worms. <laughs> I mean, Sean, I just, I, I really love the way you answered that question. And I really appreciate talking about like the political reality of education right now, not just the, the politics that surround the environments we're raising our kids in, but that, you know, teaching and education is is not separate from governance. It is it is, you know, deeply impacted by by the way people legislate um, and by by the way folks lead. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Ali Muldrow, and today we're talking with Sean Enfield about his brand new book, Holy American Burnout. If you have any questions, give us a call at 608-256-2001. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to talk about this book with you, even if you just want to congratulate Sean for getting it out there. Um, we've got him live on the air on the day that this book is is pub- is being sold for the for the first time. Do you have plans to like celebrate? Are you going to tour this book? What does it look like for you um, to have this book out in the world? And and what is the work that you do related to that? Yeah, that's thank you. Um, so tonight, yeah, we're, I'm doing a Zoom reading with the press, right? The press is based out of Nebraska. So if you're interested, um, registration link is up at splitlippress.com somewhere and you can come hear me read more. I uh, I think I'll be reading something different than what I just read. I'm not sure yet. We'll figure we're figuring that out later, um, right? So doing a Zoom reading with the press and really it'll be great to kind of like celebrate with them and to read from it and to kind of and reading with the another uh, with Sarah Fon Montgomery who also published an essay collection with the press as well uh, last year, Halfway from Home, which is uh, fantastic and um, would highly encourage you to check out that book as well. Um, and then tomorrow in Milwaukee, um, reading with some of my my dear friends in the PhD program and my great friend H. Warren, whose book um, Binded came out earlier this year at the poetry collection um, through Red Print, Red Hand Press, which I also an incredible book and would uh, highly encourage you to check out. We'll be reading at Woodland Pattern. Um, Wisconsin has two of the best bookstores. I won't pit them against each other, but I would say Room of One's Own and Woodland Pattern are the two best bookstores I've ever been to. And so I'm, I'm, we'll be reading with Room of One's Own uh, well into March of 2024. So, you know, that's, that's a ways off, but it, if you want to put it in your calendar, but, but I think it's tomorrow, important. Like you can catch this author that we're talking to on a public affair at a room of Owen's own on the near East side, which I will say is like the magic school bus of bookstores. Um, we love you here at WRT room of one's own. And you'll be there. Yes. What day in March? In March 18th, Monday, March 18th, 2024. If you, Block block it out of your calendar. Heck <laughs> you, know, yeah. you got three months to, I guess. To, yeah. And also, I'm like, this is a this book is like kind of a a great Christmas present for for the teachers in your life, for the educators in your life. Who do you hope reads this book? Have you thought about what it would look like for people to teach this book? Sure, I, uh, you know, not so much the the teaching of it. Although, um, if you want to, I'm happy to come talk to any class. I. I about it. Um, See, you're going to get a lot of calls. I feel like you're overextending. No wonder you're burnt out over here, like no, broadcasting yeah. live. Like, I will come to your classroom and talk about this book. I'm going to uh, let some people yeah. know you said that. Though. I'm available within reason, I suppose. Uh, first come, first serve, maybe. Okay. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it's cliche to say you wrote a book for the younger version of yourself. But I mean, in a lot of ways, that is exactly what I, I guess is a lot of there's a lot of guilt that I was feeling after burning out and, you know, uh, ostensibly failing at the at the work of being a teacher, right, that I carried with me for a long time. And that, again, had, you know, mental and my cat is relentless. This cat is relentless. like a, a diva, <laughs> like she wants to be recognized on the show. She is, I she ignored me for the hour I was home before this. And then as soon as she hears the voices, she's like, oh, this is, yeah, you are, you're, her tail <laughs> is your microphone right now. For it's, folks who, are not, is, who can't see what I am seeing, it is literally a, adorable. Um, so it's a it really is, cute uh, cat. Yeah, it's, she's, uh, she's a, she likes to show off. It's true. Really I just, think she was also just like, hey, don't feel bad about burning out. It's okay. 
<laughs> it's just they thank you. She's a, she's a great support cat. She um I think she could sense the uh, the the emotions rising back up. But yeah, I just watched her. She was beelining right for the keyboard. And I was like, oh, that's gonna she's gonna hang up the call. <laughs> that's it. She was she wanted to be on camera. Now she's she settled into the lap. Um yeah. So there was a lot of where was I at? Where, where did where where were we at, Marston? Uh, there was a lot of guilt I was carrying around with me, right? And so there was. A part of this book started as, a, as a admittedly, just release, catharsis, right? To kind of like relieve some of that guilt and to kind of like look at the the systemic pressures that, you know, not just that I was facing, but that the classroom was facing, that the school was facing, that the America was facing, that the world was facing, right? And to contextualize these things in a way that um, not necessarily excuse anything, I don't, I mean, but to, you know, make that narrative complete, to not put all that narrative on my own back and to put all that burnout onto my own soul, right? And so there's an aspect of it that I just was like, writing this was in some ways healing, right? In some ways, a, an act of reclamation for myself. And so I guess, you know, anybody who's, I, I guess in, in that, in, in publishing, right? There's hope that if somebody can see themselves in that story, if somebody can reflect on that and at least and find that part of it that resonates with them and that speaks to that, you know, that exhaustion that comes from, you know, being a person whose job is to help, you know, a classroom of you know, so many people be people, right? Um, if somebody can find some kind of meaning in that, then that's, you know, that's what it, that's what it's all about. I think it's a really complicated thing in kind of the, the written or, or um, more storytelling version when you when you talk about the ar archetype of an educator who's leaving the profession and that that shows up in a lot of stories actually i was just reading the book uh speak with with my oldest kiddo um and i i read that book in high school and i you know it's interesting when you read something as a young person versus as an adult i was so much more aware of how the adults were represented in that book particularly the art teacher who this student loves and ends up leaving um the profession but the one of the thematic qualities of teachers exiting the profession in writing um is this idea of did i jump ship or was the ship sinking um and and really kind of teasing out you know what is our our responsibility as educators um to commit to this profession even when this profession is damaging and you know not compensating you well and um is is really deeply challenging uh that balance of how do we show up for our young people how do we show up for our ourselves have you talked to to other educators uh, about what this book and this kind of story means to them? Yeah, I've been I've had the fortune of um, getting to chat with a few um, teachers, and now and on on podcast I, I spoke with um, Daniel Alsea, who's out in New York, who runs a great podcast, um, Talk Out of School, and we had a chance to ch chat about the book, and then I chatted with another educator based out of Denver. So they kind of like. Um, for the podcast, uh, two dope teachers with uh, Gerardo, um, I think on his last name now, and so just the and the the conversations there have been a very they've been kind of um, how do I put this? They've been in some ways affirming for what I was hoping to achieve with this book, right? And to and these are like veteran teachers who have been at the job for like um, you know decades plus and. Um, you know, not not affirming in the sense of like, oh, you're really a good teacher, right? not in that sense, but that, you know, that that there was an element of like reality being depicted in this book, that there was a, a kind of um, being seen. Yes, Gerardo Munoz is who I talked with, and um, Kevin Adams is the co-host of that show. Thank you, Jade. Incredible. Isn't she the best? Work. I mean, that's, just that's a on goddess. The, on the spot, on the spot research. That's that's fantastic. Join her fan club. Um, like we're we're huge fans of Jade here at W O R T. But yes, team, thank you. Team Jade. Yeah. And so getting to have those conversations with the it's just been it's I mean, I'm again I'm learning and I'm I'm constantly trying to to learn and but also there's like a bit of there's a yeah, it makes the it has kind of eased some of the anxieties I felt about this book entering the world, right? It is it is uh I feel it has put me in a in a, a community that I was I was maybe lacking at a time when I was, you know, we talked about how writing can feel a little bit um, lonely, and in the process of it. Uh, but for me, uh, teaching it also kind of started to feel lonely. I didn't, 
you know, I didn't think that I could ask for help sometimes, right? And I had I had some great teachers in my school that I, I I'm sure my that would have helped if I had thought that I could do that. But there's like a fear, and it's a very like imposed kind of anxious fear and a, and a taught fear, especially as a uh, as as a man, right? That you it's best to solve these things in your own right. Um, and so I, there's a a socialized fear there that I needed to like handle this and it would seem weak if I was like, Oh, these 13 year olds are getting to me. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> uh, and so there was an ability to put all that on myself as well. That kind of came into it. And so like putting this book out is kind of like, you know, added some relief that it may be, a, that, it, that there's, there's a larger community of people doing the same work and that we all have something that we can offer each other. And I have some small sliver of it in these pages that I hope, help somebody else and now I'm, now I'm getting to learn from other people and get those slivers uh, returned in full so that's that's been the kind of I think this is one gift. of the things that makes the book great is that this book has a real level of reflection it has uh, an element of it that is deeply personal and yet it applies to this large system um, that is education and so I, I couldn't have you on and not ask you you know what would have kept you in the classroom what do you think we should be doing to support teachers and retain teachers sure yeah I mean I um I mean, I guess I'll spoil my own book. I was I was let go from my position. My my um, so I I would have I was planning on going back for the next year there and trying again. Um, and, but my my students performed poorly on their um, uh, their their exams at the end of the year, and it was decided that they would go with the new instructor. Um, but then I never quite left. I mean, I left the classroom as a head instructor, but I could never quite leave the. I, education right I, I mean even still in my um my phd i'm still you know seeking out these teaching positions not just to like support my education but also because there's a part of that that i i feel like i need to do but in terms of like i mean there was a a level of i don't want to disparage the school i was at but there was a level of support that was lacking where i was at from the administration in terms of um Anyway, maybe I'll leave it at that. But without, I don't want. It's 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 that's uh, that's all I need to say. But in terms of, yeah, I mean, I I was still gearing up to try again. Um, and I who knows? I I, I am somebody who gets caught up in uh, hypotheticals and alternative realities. But um, at the end of the day, that that is the way that it went, and I am here where I'm at now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in the long run, there's a there's like a, a kind of there's a drive I think for most teachers and at least the most teachers that I know that does kind of compel that work that is um, that does push that work and that if you nurture that drive and if you support that drive then you will find that those educators will you know thrive and um, do amazing work in the classroom and do amazing work and that unfortunately that is not always the case at on the administrative level of the schools, at the um, district level, at the state level, right? And so um, I just wish some of the folks who make these decisions to legislate what can and cannot be taught in schools and to police what it is that educators are doing, I just wish that they would sit in the classroom for at least a day, right? And just shut up for a second and you know just observe and and see the you know the kind of for the most part not everybody i mean not a part with a broad brush but the kind of passion that goes into somebody who chooses to do this work and to choose to do this work for an extended period of time especially thank you so much for speaking to that you're listening to wort 89.9 fm my name is ali maldro and today we're talking to sean enfield about his brand new book Holy American Burnout. You can buy that book today. It is out. It is in stores. Sean will be in Wisconsin in March um, reading at A Room of One's Own. Um, and and I think, you know, there are so many teachers who 
I think, deeply identify with feeling under-supported um, or feeling like the wrong things are being used against them or are qualifying their work. Um, because, yeah, a kid can struggle on a test and that doesn't change the fact that that kid fell in love with reading in your class. A kid can struggle Absolutely. on a test and that doesn't change the fact that at the beginning of the semester they had their head down every day and, God, was it a win the day that they picked it up. Um, yes. And so I think, you know, as a, as a person who's gotten to spend some time in some incredible classrooms, um, when you do that work well, it's really hard to measure. Um, there's not there's not often Absolutely. a test that reveals the kind of love that people pour into being um, really skilled and talented educators. And so it's it's interesting to think about what our teachers need from us as a greater community um, and what you needed as as a younger teacher who is getting started in this work um, and wanted to do it well and, and continues to be compelled to, you know, educate young people and empower folks. I, I do think, you know, you said something earlier that I did I did disagree with, which is that, you know, to a certain extent, you go to school to become part of the workforce. And I, I, I disagree with that, you know, not because I'm like, I don't feel like you made that up, that idea. I'm <laughs> like, um, I, I disagree with that because I think we go to school to learn how to think for ourselves. And there yes. are all these things um, that are, are barriers to, to thinking critically, including standardized testing. Um, when, you were, when you were writing Holy American Burnout, did you make space in this, in this book to talk about the difference between, you know, how, how, we, um, how we pursue education in the United States and why we pursue education in, in the United States? Um, and and maybe where that works for you and where that does not work for you. Yeah, um, that's that is I guess that is the act of the whole book, right? That's the searching, right? The um, so burnout is the title, right? But I don't. I hope burnout's not the end. Um, that's where my particular story ended, right? But there's an act in that retelling that story, right? Of envisioning an alternative, right? That I think um, envisioning, like you said, education is something beyond that is something that is like finding oneself, finding one's identity, finding one's way into not work, but into the world, into, into their communities, into their, um, you know, into their friendships, their families, right? All of these things, right? Learning how one perceives the world and learning how to perceive the world in a way that is critical and engaging and dynamic, right? That is what I'm searching for. And um, empathetic and compassionate and kind, I think, that there's a, a severe lack of that in a lot of spaces, uh, education being one of those at, at times, right? And to use, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the gifts that reading has given me, that literature has given me, a, an ability to kind of exercise that empathy and to make that empathy itself, you know, something that I'm, I'm constantly like evaluating and reflecting upon and learning to do better, right? It's, it's something I don't think I'll ever perfect, but that to try and make that something that I constantly pursue that perfection, perfecting of, even though I know I won't. The amount that you love like reading um, is so apparent in this book, is apparent in this conversation. Um, it's so obvious that you're a person who has a pretty long list of favorite authors. And I think that you get to be on people's lists of favorite authors now. And I hope um, I hope that that is something you get to like revel in and enjoy. Sean Enfield, it was such a gift to get to talk to you about your book, Holy American Burnout. Thank you for joining us today on WORT 89.9 FM. Thank you to the folks who are listening. Huge shout out to our producer, Jade, our engineer, yes. John, our news director, Shelly yeah. Pittman. Y'all are the best. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. It's the same recorded message you've been singing all along. Keep handing us the Bible while you're walking off with all the gold. The bureaucratic office sends you merry-go-rounding. By the KKK, police the streets by bloodhounding. Interest on the credit card.